Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental profession. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Mouthy IP. And it's exciting today for a, a number of reasons. First, we have our normal quirky cast of characters, including Sarah Strain, Kate Tyner, and Dr. Richard Hankins. Welcome all. However, there's a couple more reasons why this one's especially exciting. First, it's like a journal club, and we know how much everyone loves journal clubs. The other reason is our special guest, Dr. Trevor Van Schooneveld. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Trevor Van Schooneveld. I'm an adult ID physician. I'm uh, associate medical director of our uh, infection control program here and also a stewardship medical director. Excited to be here. Thanks for joining us. So a little bit of background. Um, we did an episode earlier that was kind of like a journal club and we had a subject matter expert on to talk about a journal article that we had found. Since then, I've been keeping my eye open for more and more journal articles. And um, really, if anybody is interested in dental journal articles, follow the OSAP Facebook page. They're posting more and more. Um, but the one we're going to talk about today is called Pandora's Box in the Dental Clinic. So I am going to hand it over to Dr. Hankins to give us a little summary of that article. Uh, so this was a, an article that was published in um, ISHI, the, the journal uh, Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology that's run by Shea. It was published this year. Um, the reason that I found this article so interesting is we always discuss about uh, concerns for outbreaks in a dental setting and um, that we are able to provide some examples sometimes, but the examples are only a few. And we always discuss about, oh, we just don't know how many true outbreaks are occurring. Um, there's likely a, a lot more than what we're aware of. And so I feel like that's always the discussion about outbreaks in a dental setting. Um, and so I found this article to be very interesting in how, how they uh, actually investigated and, and found an outbreak that occurred uh, between multiple dental settings. So this article was an article from Israel that was uh, looking at uh, um, two separate patients that had um, infections in 2018. And so... In Israel, there was a uh, two separate patients who were having a maxillary sinus augmentation that was performed. And one of these patients went in and had this um, procedure performed. And following that procedure, within hours, they became sick, uh, were hospitalized, and had blood cultures that grew Enterobacter Kobe as well as had a culture from their maxillary sinus um, 
tissue that was implanted that also grew the same organism. Uh, within a week, there was a second patient at a different facility uh, that had the same procedure and then also uh, became sick following it and had blood cultures that were positive for the same enterobacter. Uh, and so uh, each of these organisms were reported to Israel's uh, National Center for Infection Control. And the uh, facility did a investigation into um, each, of, each of these uh, infections. Um, what I thought was so interesting in terms of reading the article was how quickly uh, they acted. And so the first case occurred on June 12th, and the patient was um, transferred to the hospital that same day. The National Center for Infection Control in Israel uh, started their outbreak investigation of the first patient on June 14th and shut down the clinic that the patient was at on June 15th. The second patient didn't get sick or didn't have their procedure done until June 18th. And then the uh, National Center for Infection Control began their investigation of the second clinic on June 20th. And so um, I, I think one of my biggest takeaways and interesting uh, aspects of the case is just how quickly they moved in terms of identifying, um, yes, there's an issue going to these clinics and then shutting a clinic down um, within three days after the, the patient was, was sick. And I think one of the big things for me is it was a single patient. At the point in time they shut the clinic down, one patient was sick. Um, and so when we think about outbreak investigation, uh, I think often this is spurred on by lots of people becoming ill. And in this case, they shut a clinic down for a single patient. Um, and so the, the further investigation that they did um, in terms of evaluating the links between this, they found a uh, each of the procedures were done by different dentists in different dental clinics with different dental assistants, although there was a, the same um, anesthesiologist uh, that was used in each. Um, they did environmental cultures of the uh, medications that the anesthesiologists use between the two clinics. And so I thought it was kind of, I thought it was interesting. I don't know much about uh, how anesthesiologists utilize certain medications, but I thought it was interesting. The anesthesiologist took the medications himself from facility to facility, and then when not using the medications, took them home. Um, that they cultured the vials and the medicines themselves, didn't actually find positive cultures within the medications, but found positive cultures for the same bacteria within the medicine cart, medicine box. Um, and so they um, did uh, an analysis of the different strains and found it was the same organism in patient A, patient B, and on the, the um, cart that the anesthesiologists use to transport the medications. So I am not familiar am not with the Entobacter cobii. Is that a particularly bad bug? So to my knowledge, I uh, I wasn't familiar with that specific strain of Enterobacter, although um, Enterobacter itself is something that uh, 
Dr. Van Schooneveld and I see patients that have these infections in the hospital, it can be fairly, interbacter strains can be fairly resistant. And so um, it is of noted concern when we're seeing uh, interbacter strains. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think the fact that it was an unusual enterobacter strain is what drew everyone's attention to this, uh, would be my guess. Um, like you pointed out, uh, Ritz, the, the problem with a lot of these outbreaks is you never know they exist because it's in the outpatient setting. They then present to the inpatient setting or the ED. Uh, maybe cultures are taken, maybe they aren't. And it's not because the patients may end up at different facilities there's no way to trace it back without a central uh, agency like they had here. And so, um, yeah, I mean, this is like an enterobacter that's, you know, can be part of the normal flora and does usually cause a lot of infections. Um, but, uh, you know, so it's hard to say much about it. Um, yeah, it, other than it being a unique strain, I think, which is what drew their attention to it. So the, the unusual strain caught my attention. This is Kate. Um, I also wondered from like a clinical perspective, if the way the patient presented, like, is it a typical presentation? I'm, I'm going back and I'm looking at like what a sinus lift procedure is, et cetera, that a person would become septic so quickly. And that like an infection control, I feel like it, it's a bit like you, things never line up this nicely right? That somebody would present that quickly, you would have cultures taken from the surgical site and blood cultures, and they would match, and you would be able to like link it back to an office. It just seems like this lined up almost perfectly. And so I wondered about the presentation of the patient, if, if that's typical, like, do you see people with uh, these sinus lift procedures? Is that a common procedure? Have you ever seen people become septic as infectious diseases doctors? I have never seen someone after they had this procedure. Wow. <laughs> I feel like I I've, seen, I've seen people uh, who have infections after some dental procedures, but I've never, this is the first time I've, I've read about this procedure. Yeah, I agree. It is kind of unique in the rapidity of the infection. Um, and so it's hard to argue that that was the source of infection, but the mechanism of contamination is challenging, I think, because you had cultures were positive from the bone grafts. Um, and so how did it cause such a rapid infection? When I, particularly the first report, you know, my concern would be, was there contamination of the bone graft, which... We've certainly seen that happen with TB disastrously um, recently. So it is unusually rapid um, of an onset, of, particularly of, uh, of signs and symptoms of infection. Mm -hmm. And uh, I agree, when we think about things from an infection control perspective, you know, like we're like after the fact trying to like lay it out like detectives, right? The other thing that's interesting is an anesthesiologist if I'm, if I'm thinking of this procedure appropriately, the dentist or the surgeon would have been operating in the mouth in that cavity, but the anesthesiologist in most cases wouldn't handle graft tissue, wouldn't be having their hands in the patient's mouth. And so how did we get from the cart into the bloodstream? You know, like the, the, the anesthesiologist, like I get like, that's obvious, like that's the only thing that's common between these two procedures, 
but it also makes you wonder like what their role in the procedure was that they could have potentially contaminated the products that 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 it's interesting and i'm not i don't want to take away from this the idea that yes people can get really bad infections from oral surgery that's an important takeaway but just trying to line up um what are some of the practice features that we would kind of take away from an infection control perspective a we don't take home narcotics ever <laughs> that's one thing that like this box of what and how did it go from clinic to clinic i think that's one thing that i would ask about but also it makes you wonder for this type of procedure, what type of anesthesia would they have had? Would this be a general anesthesia case or like a twilight type case? Do we know? I thought they'd said that this had general anesthesia. Okay. Yeah, I said, I said what I'd say, a combination of local and general. Yeah, and so systemic anesthesia. Yeah, so conceivably you could have had contamination during local anesthesia provision. Um, although that's usually provided by the dentist, not by the anesthesiologist. Yeah. So the other part, and I think um, that one of the interesting features of this study, and something that I don't have a ton of expertise with, is the idea that they were able to type these cultures, not only was it an unusual organism that prompted some interest, but that they took um, careful measure of each of these specimens to say, can we link them together? And I think Dr. Vance Gunnefeld, that's one of the things we were wondering, like, what is that technology? Because some organisms are always the same. Some organisms are sometimes the same. Like, can you tell us about like, what went into that puzzle. Yeah, so I mean these uh this species falls into the Enterobacter cloacae complex, which is a complex of Enterobacter and they basically did in my understanding it is a digestion of the DNA with amplification and then ran it on a gel and if you look at figure 2 they all line up uh perfectly. Mm -hmm. Um now yeah so it's pretty clear that the strains are all related. It's super uncommon, just having done this before, that they actually look that perfect. Uh, they look pretty perfect, but it may have to do, this is not Western blot, this is a different technique. Um, and so that might be part of why it looks so perfect. So I think, and remember that like our audience here is gonna be like often a dental audience. And so when you talk about like, this was a microbiology culture, and then they mm -hmm. put it into a different test method and they're essentially fingerprinting this Enterobacter cobi. And right. like, that's the part, if you fingerprinted any Enterobacter cobi, will it always be the same? Like no matter where you grow it, it's always gonna look the same. Um, well, you're getting into technical things where microbiologists would be better. They shouldn't though, because it's a complex of organisms. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there is diversity of strains even within the complex. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, you know, we'd really have to find a microbiologist to decide if it really was uh, technically adequate to differentiate the gram-negative mm -hmm. organisms. My experience is for gram-negatives, usually you can, um, but I mean, one of the things we've learned from even from C. difficile typing is that the old techniques we use are not adequate to differentiate the organisms. 
where whole genome sequencing actually revealed a completely different picture for C. difficile transmission than our old like texendotyping or uh, or Western blotting used to that we would use to uh, type. It wasn't discriminatory enough. That being said, this is a really funky strain of Enterobacter, and so they're probably the same. Okay. But what really, uh, a couple of things really struck me in, in that it was like looking at a, uh, a CSI Israel kind of show <laughs> where everything lined up, everything, and as, and as Dr. Hankins had referenced, everything was closed up so very quickly, right. everything was addressed so very quickly. So that was one thing that struck me. The other is, you know, uh, Dr. Van Skinnefield is talking about some very complex testing and very, uh, you know, rare things and very technical things. And when you boil it all down, all of those technical things had to do with identifying it, um, um, matching it and the like. And what was the net result? The individual, the anesthesiologist, had to go through training on how to clean his cart and transport the drugs and hand hygiene. Mm -hmm. That was the result. Right. And that's, I think that's going back. Like I'm looking at the picture of the anesthesia cart or the little box that they have. I think it's important, like from an infection control perspective, like if we're ever investigating things, we're kind of loath to go culture things in the environment, right? If I put a swab on any surface, it's going to find something, but that's not necessarily meaningful, right? Like that surface was not meant to be sterile. If we would have gotten a culture from the graft tissue, which was meant to be sterile, that would be really meaningful to me. But the box itself, if we know the bot, like did the box get contaminated by the patient? Like right. it's just like, it's not. So that's something I think that we should caution in from a journal club perspective. Like that, that would always be the answer is if you ever touch a box, like you can't go from box to mouth without some kind of hand hygiene, right? Um, we, when we observe procedures in the field, one of the techniques we've observed is the assistant is grabbing things with sterile forceps out of a box that's already open, you know, so that she's not contaminating her hands. And so I think that's, you're right, Dan, of all the sophisticated testing and whatnot, the lesson here is really like a very basic infection control question, right? Boxes and carts are always going to be contaminated. That's the, the even if we use a low-level disinfectant, that's still going to leave behind spores and things like that. It, it doesn't enter the surgical environment. We have to use sterile things for sterile procedures. Dr. Van Skinveld, I'm interested in your take on their outbreak investigation. And, yeah. and would it change anything that you would do going forward um, in other outbreak investigations? Yeah, I mean, I think what you pointed out, Rich, was pretty amazing, the rapidity that they acted um, and how quickly they worked on this. I mean, I think the, the thing you miss out on is tracing back the bone graft solution, our bone graft material. Um, uh yeah it's it's challenging because as kate pointed out um you know did that get contaminated when it, in the first procedure or was it contaminated and that's what contaminated the procedure i don't know 
you just don't know. And so there were, I think, some things that could have been done there. I mean, I think their culturing of all the liquid, all of the injection solutions and things like that made a lot of sense. Uh, but I agree with Kate, there's, uh, there's a danger in culturing surfaces and things like that. I mean, if you clearly have um, like IV solution driven uh, infections, bacteremia, things like that, culturing some of your uh, things like that makes sense, but um, it's quite unusual. Well, and that's, this is a dental procedure. And so I, I'm drawing from some experience of what we know with tissue in the acute care environment, right? So if you were ever to see a person who had had a graft or a tissue, uh, I'm, th I'm thinking organ transplant, particularly like right after like a non-native tissue is implanted, that becomes like a, wow, I will wanna know more about that because in an organ transplant, potentially other patients have had similar organs. But in this case, if it's contaminated graft tissue, then the manufacturer should be um, notified as well, right? Even if we don't have, uh, if it's like a single use graft, like they open it out of a package and that's what we have. I would still wanna go back to that manufacturer and say, hey, we had a very serious patient adverse event, even if it's just one, because you would want them to do some degree of quality control on their graft. And that would be the, to your point, that would be the, the, the stone left unturned. Yeah. Yeah, because the first graft was a xenograft, and the second was an autologous, and so there could have been contamination of that first graft resulting contamination of the cart, and then that could have been the mechanism for the second one, which actually to me would make more sense with the rapidity of the first case versus the second case being a much slower onset. Um, so yeah, it's very interesting. The, the whole question of infection control of in anesthesia is a really sort of knotty issue. Uh, the, uh, Shea put out some guidance on this, uh, most of which is not guided by science. Most of it is guided by expert opinion, uh, because if you've ever sat in the OR and watched infection control in the OR, the anesthesiologist is constantly manipulating their IV infusions and giving this and giving that and has 14 pre-drawn solutions that may or may not be lit. Well, hopefully they're labeled. Um, and so they, they try to answer all these questions like, do you need to do hand hygiene every single time you access a stopcock? You know, and they would say, well, I do, you know, 150 episodes of hand hygiene in one hour and it's unrealistic or do I need to change gloves? And so um, I think those are areas where they also didn't really investigate that very well other than, you know, they did find out, you know, they, they sort of looked at some of that, what were his practices and there were opportunities for hand hygiene. But I think those opportunities are a little murky in how you define them. Uh, because if you read the Shea things, they say you should follow the five, you know, opportunities for hand hygiene. But if you actually measure opportunities, there are like 150 per hour or more uh, in the OR for anesthesia. So it is a challenging environment to find that balance between what's what we should do and what's practical. Right. And I think this is a place where I've learned a lot by observing dental procedures is it's definitely like a little bit different environment when it comes to hand hygiene opportunities. Whereas we would in an acute care or a long-term care setting, we go with that opportunities and did you do it? Opportunities, did you do it? In my 
limited exposure so far that the practice is really driven by being careful not to contaminate. So they use a lot of surface barriers. Um, they purposely use assistance so that the dentist hands don't get contaminated. And so I think that that's, it's from a frontier of infection control perspective, it's nice to see that there may be um, different ways to address the problem than simply do hand hygiene 150 times in an hour, mm -hmm. right? Um, yep. So that's, uh, go ahead. Dan. No, I was gonna say, how, how long would this live on a hand uh, to the point where it wasn't dangerous? Uh, because one of the things I thought that kind of also struck me as a reading through is when they went, they tested everybody's hands and they didn't find any samples on the hands. Well, that was days later. So you've washed your hands since well, yeah, days ago. At some point. Yeah. I, so I was like, it didn't quite follow. I mean, sure, test test body person and then everything else that they've touched. Yeah, if you really wanted to investigate if someone was colonized, you'd have to do a rectal swab and see if they were uh, colonically colonized. Uh, but yeah, I agree. The hands, sort of pointless to swab the hands. Yeah. Now, I, I didn't look at the footnotes. So whether or not there was some other swabbing going on, I didn't I mean, look for that. Puts the investigation into a whole new light. Yeah. Um, but I think like the other thing, um, it is an unusual organism. I think about like when you would go and look for healthcare workers to be carrying something. I think of things like group, was it group B strep that people can carry for a long time and they become colonized. Maybe not everybody's colonized. And group these a. are things that can cause big problems in a clinical setting. And group a. you don't hear that way, right? Right, right. Group A has been uh, previously associated with uh, operating room infections when it's carried by, asymptomatically carried by patient, by uh, anesthesiologists or surgeons, so. So that in that case, it would make sense, like if you even see one case of group A strep, and we're not talking Israel, we're talking in the United States, yep. in a system that's less rapid, one case of group A strep is something that deserves like a, whoa, 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 let's go talk to people about what's going on. But this organism doesn't fall into that category. Right. Enterobacter doesn't fall into that realm. Right. No, I agree. What if it had been E. coli? Mm -hmm. Would they have even noticed? Right. Dr. Van Scherfeld, I'm interested, is there, um, when, when these cultures go positive, if this happened in Nebraska, would these be reported to any state organization at all? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay, that's what I was thinking. I didn't think that there there would be any reporting. And so one of the things I was thinking of as I'm looking at this is, what would be the takeaway for a dentist in Nebraska? And so dentist in Nebraska, I have a patient who um, I just did a procedure on and within a day they get sick. Um, what should I be doing, if anything? And so I, I look at this and thought, oh, wow, they, they acted fast for an infection control investigation to occur after a single patient. And so um, if I were a dentist in Nebraska, should I be notifying an infection control group such as ICAP to assist after a single patient? 
I'm going to jump in on this and I'm going to say, yes, please notify us. And I will preface that by saying, if you have an incident like this and you report it to ICAP or your local public health department um, for an outbreak investigation, or even just to, to say, Hey, I don't know what's going on. That doesn't necessarily lead you down a regulatory path. So you don't, you shouldn't be afraid to call your public health department or call ICAP. It does not mean that you're automatically in trouble because you had a patient with an infection. It just means that we need to do some digging and find out what happened. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I mean, that's what we would do in the hospital as well. You don't want to just sweep it under the rug because it may have nothing to do with uh, surgical technique or anything like that. It may have been contaminated solutions. I mean, that's how we find these things is people have to report them. And so uh, there's a difference between an expected complication uh, you know, which be, would be an occasional infection and a rapid onset unusual infection, which is how you would classify these, I think, which would be exactly the kind of thing you should report. I agree 100%, Sarah, uh, because somebody needs to ask some questions. Why are we seeing this? This is out of the realm of what would normally be expected. And I think part of that also falls back on the clinicians to educate their patients after they've had these procedures. You know, if you have anything, if you have a fever that spikes tomorrow, please call us. Don't just take some Tylenol and go to bed. Let us know. Um, if you're having complications, we want to see you again. Um, I feel like there's an opportunity in the dental profession to do a better job of educating patients on those things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that Israel has uh, a system that is actively looking out for this. And here in the United States, we don't have that. And so we need people to like send up a red flag and say like, hey, I'm seeing something that I need help with in order for uh, other systems to get involved to assist with that. Yeah, it, they. I suspect this came out of their nationwide CRE issue that they had, and I think they have a whole national program for infection control that uh, rapidly identifies outbreaks, particularly related to CPCRE, uh, just because they've had some issues with that in the past. So, I was wondering if they were just sick of COVID and looking for anything else to, <laughs> to find. <laughs> Uh, they vaccinated everybody so many times nobody gets COVID there anymore so yeah well for all of our listeners out there we just recorded another podcast a special edition with a Dr. Steve Geierman who um, was talking a lot about our patient safety culture in dentistry and a new um, adverse event reporting uh, platform that they have specific to dental facilities so I would recommend everyone jump and listen to that when it's out as well. Um, you can report these things anonymously too. So um, I think that there needs to be more education and reporting and more patient education looking for those adverse effects. This is how we start to learn and talk about these things and bring increased visibility to them. Um, is by reporting them, right? If we don't ever talk about it, we don't ever notice, we don't ever improve the processes. Um, And so 
I think it's important we continue. I appreciate you guys focusing on dentistry. I think it's an important area that's been neglected in infection control. There's lots of questions we don't know the answer to. Um, <clears throat> and lots of things that whenever, you know, people ask us, we kind of just say, well, not sure that seems reasonable or that doesn't. But uh, I think uh, anesthesia is another area, I think, where we don't have as much data as we need in um, what infection control should look like specifically. And so I think these are just areas where we could use more data. We could use more studies. We could use more work. Um, and these are the kind of things that are going to help prompt that. That's great. And just as a sneak peek for everybody out there that's listening, I found another journal article about dental unit water lines and how they cultured resistant pseudomonas out of those. So I think that'll be a chat for another time, but I am really interested to hear what Dr. Hankins has to say about that one. Oh, I, I just saw another very interesting one on aerosolization from dental drills uh, and mitigating that different types of suction, um, which I, you know, has become a big topic with COVID and do we aerosolize stuff in dentistry? I don't know how many times we, we got asked that question. You probably already talked about it 20 times. That actually sounds like what our first journal uh, club article was about. Yeah, there is a there is a newer article that was just published on the same thing though. So mm -hmm. there you go. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Dr. Vance, thank you so much for joining us. Much appreciated. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you to all of our guests. Thanks for the, the great conversation. Look for the uh, footnotes. You can read the article and see the uh, the anesthesiologist tackle box on your own. And uh, we'll uh, catch you on the next episode of the Mouthy IP. Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP Infection Control Hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP podcast episode, and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office.